Matthew 5, 7, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. I don't know about you, but when I think about the kind of world we live in, I think mercy is like one of the last things that I think of. If anything, our society is merciless. It's cutthroat. Um, I think about how people trample over one another to find success and reach the top of their industry. I think about cancel culture. I think about children being ripped from their parents at the border. I think about all those people on death row. I see so much Lack of mercy in our world today. I was watching a documentary the other week about Britney Spears. And if you've seen that documentary, it's actually heartbreaking and kind of disgusting to think about how so many people have slut-shamed Britney Spears as a teen. And even when she was going through a mental health crisis, how so many people in the media mocked her. You know, me included. I remember just laughing at that. It just shows how much we lack mercy in our world today for the people that are broken, who are hurting, and the people that actually need it the most. Yet in this world that is devoid of mercy, Jesus offers us a better way. And he offers us this beatitude, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. And it tells us that the way of Jesus is the way of mercy. And so today we're going to talk about what it means to be a people of mercy, what that means and how that manifested in Jesus's life. Now more than something that God does now and then, mercy, we have to understand, is who God is. That one of the most frequently used words for mercy throughout scripture is this word, this Hebrew word, chesed. I don't know if I pronounced that right because I didn't finish seminary in, in the language, but it's just said. I did finish seminary, but I didn't finish the language. It means steadfast, enduring, unbreakable love. Another translation defines it as God's loving kindness. You know, when I think about mercy, I remember that despite my own failures, despite my shortcomings, despite my sin, despite my propensity to F things up, God extends his loving kindness to me. Instead of receiving what I deserve, he gives us more. And that's what mercy is. And so today we're going to explore what it means to be merciful. How do we embody this loving kindness that God has extended to us? And what does mercy look like in our lives? And we find that there are three ways that Jesus extended mercy throughout his life that we can aspire to do as well. So why don't we pray and then we'll jump into it. God, we thank you so much for who you are. God, I thank you first and foremost for the mercy that you have shown us. That while we were sinners, that you came and you crossed the great divide to reach us. That when we had made a mess of our lives, and Lord knows we've all made messes of our lives at one point or another, you have come to come piece the pieces back together. That when we have rebelled against you, when we have hurt our brother and our sister, when we have been apathetic to the cries of injustice, still you never stop coming after us. Still you keep extending your loving kindness. So help us embody the very mercy that you give to us. I pray you would illuminate this text to us today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. 
So I want to cover three ways that Jesus extended mercy in his life. And I think this is, you know, sometimes I just preach a message, but sometimes it feels like this is a rhema word. What I mean is this is a word for our community right now. And I believe in these three ways that Jesus expressed mercy in his life is, is something he's calling us to rally behind, especially during this Lenten season. And so the first thing, Jesus expressed mercy by helping those in need. I want to look to Matthew 25, 35 through 40. And this is what Jesus is saying to the Pharisees. These were the churchgoers. These were the people that grew up and had memory verse, Bible contest, medals and trophies. These are the dudes that never miss a Sunday. These were the religious elite. And this is what he's saying to them and to his disciples. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. One of the ways that Jesus expressed mercy in his life was by helping those in need, feeding the hungry, inviting in the stranger, clothing the naked, looking after the sick. And the church throughout history has regularly referred to this as almsgiving. I know it's a very Catholic term, almsgiving. It's the giving of alms, of money and food and resources to those who need it the most. And this is the invitation to us as his followers that we are called to practice the way of mercy as Jesus practiced the way of mercy, saying, whatever you do for the least of these, you actually do for me. And I love this passage because Jesus isn't just telling us some religious, you know, morally good thing to do, but what he's doing is he's essentially restoring the sacred dignity in the very people the world regularly disgraces. He's saying, you know, that person that you pass that's hungry on the street, I'm there. And the hungry, the immigrant, the prisoner declaring that they all bear the image of God and are worthy of dignity and love. This is why I love, you know, Jesus is the G. When he says in Hosea, he's quoting the prophet Hosea, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. He was saying, listen, the songs and the sacrifices you offer me are cool and all. I mean, I'm vibing with move your heart and reckless love and all the songs you sing. I love it. But that person that you passed who's hungry on the street on the way to church, I'm there. That's the worship that I desire. Whatever you do for the least of these, you do for me. Now, I don't know if you know, but historically, we're in a season of Lent. But historically, Lent was not only a season of self-denial through fasting. You know, I assume most of us are fasting. But it's also a season of self-sacrifice through almsgiving giving of what I have to those who have not. And there would be a special emphasis during the Lenten season for the body of Christ to help those in need during that season. And believers would help feed and clothe and house the most vulnerable people in their neighborhoods. Listen, despite the bad rap Christians get in the media today, um, statistically, Christians are still by and far the most charitable towards good causes and nonprofit organizations and helping those in need. And this 
this is part of our calling as the church to extend mercy to those who are in need just as Jesus did. But hear me, church, extending mercy isn't just about meeting physical needs. It includes emotional, mental, and spiritual needs as well. It's a vision for shalom, which is universal flourishing. It's the holistic redemption of our world. Martin Luther once said, mercy is righteousness in action. What is righteousness? Righteousness is God's right order of things. Mercy, in other words, is remaking the world as God intended it to be. It's setting things right as God imagines it. It's actionable. It's not just talk. Contemporary scholars I love have even broadened this further, this definition of mercy, to not only include physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual needs, but to include even structural issues of injustice. See, when we're talking about things like hunger and poverty and debt, we're actually talking about the symptoms of injustice. But mercy is also focusing on the structures that keep so many people hungry without access to clean water. It also examines why our immigration system makes it so difficult to welcome in the other or why our criminal justice system disproportionately imprisons black men over anyone else in America. It, it explores the structures of injustice as well as the symptoms. Mark Allen Paul, who's a New Testament scholar, he says this, the merciful favor the removal of everything that prevents life from being as God intends. Poverty, ostracism, hunger, disease, demons, and debt. I feel like in church, we focus way too much on removing the demons. And we don't think about all of these other structural issues that God is calling us to tackle. In other words, there are some who are called to remedy the symptoms of injustice, and there are others that God is calling to reform the structures of injustice, and both are important works of mercy. Both are absolutely necessary when we're talking about shalom, universal flourishing, holistic redemption. Both the systems and the structures must be addressed. The symptoms and the structures. That's why people, you know, like my friend Christian who does mobilized love, who's on the ground in Bayview neighborhoods every single day, passing out food from his food truck to people who need it. He's important. He's practicing mercy by addressing the symptoms of injustice. And, you know, we had Emily over last night. I felt so bad. We were supposed to order DoorDash, um, but it never came. And so we were just, Emily was starving. She started looking at fig like, man, should I eat fig? But it was just so cool to hear about the work that Emily's doing. You know, she's advancing human and civil rights for Asian Americans, focusing on the structural issues of injustice. Both are necessary. Mercy is a holistic endeavor and it's necessary in our pursuit of justice. But hear me, mercy might manifest in action, but it begins first and foremost in the heart. That mercy is first and foremost birthed in our hearts. That true mercy, the mercy of this beatitude, has to draw close enough to see suffering. It has to draw close enough to weep with those who weep. To relieve another person's suffering, we must first choose to enter into that suffering. This is why last week's beatitude is so foundational. If we never mourn the suffering of others, we have no compassion to help them. 
That's why John Calvin, he says, mercy is the grief we experience from the sadness of others. That mercy is first experiencing the grief from the sadness of others. I think one of the greatest tragedies in our modern day, individualistic, technologically advanced world is that we aren't close enough to people to actually feel their suffering. I'm sorry, but I can, I can only feel so much when all that connects us is an Instagram messaging thread. I can only feel so much when I'm seeing only the highlighted posts from your life on social media. And I think this is especially true when it comes to the marginalized and forgotten. It's so easy. Come on, how many of you know to live here in San Francisco, in the Bay Area, in our little bubbles, never having to interact with people that are radically different from us? But I know that there's a hunger. I've talked to so many of you. Man, I was talking to Jerry the other day, and he was just, I could feel the fire that he longs for the church to be an agent of shalom in the city that we inhabit, that we are called to help those in need in every way possible, that there are people in our community right now who are longing to serve the underserved, to help those in need. And this is how we participate in mercy. Erasmus of Rotterdam, he's a Catholic humanist. He says this, Jesus declares blessed those who out of brotherly love consider another's misery their own, who are pained at the misfortunes of a neighbor, who shed tears for the calamities that strike other people, who feed the needy out of their own wealth, clothe the naked, warn the erring, teach the ignorant, forgive the sinner, in short, who use whatever resources they have to lift up and restore others. Man, I just think about people from our community, what this looks like. It looks like Ying helping someone move. It looks like you treating someone out who's going through an emotionally hard time and just being with them. It looks like Alex when he was handing out goodie bags to the people experiencing homelessness a few months back. It looks like us volunteering with mobilized love and being a presence in our city. There are so many ways that God calls us to participate in mercy. And so the questions I want to ask you are this. What are some of the ways that you can practice almsgiving during this Lenten season? And I think specifically there's this season of Lent, there is a calling and almost a pushing of us to step out of comfort to help those who actually need our help. Who are those in need that God is putting on your heart, the hungry, the immigrant, the outcast, the prisoner, and what can you do to help them? You know what my dream is, guys? My dream is that one day we won't have to rely on the outreaches that we set up every quarter but that people would band together in our community and say, hey, I have a heart to help those people in the Bayview that are needing food. I have a heart to help those who are in the criminal justice system. I have a heart to help the immigrants who are trying to come in and that you, you take the mantle and you push it forward in our community. I believe that God right now is sparking even different causes in our community, on our hearts, different things that express God's mercy. And I believe there's a calling right now in this season during Lent for our church to step into those acts of mercy. So, you know, the word I gave earlier, courage, that's just not for vulnerability. It's also for this. Would you step forward in courage to lead the way in extending mercy to those in need? So the first one, Jesus extended mercy and expressed it by helping those in need. But the second is this, forgiving 
the offender. One of the most radical and countercultural things Jesus did in his life was forgive his enemies. Keep in mind, Jesus wasn't just forgiving people who insulted him or spread untrue rumors about him or betrayed him. No, he was forgiving the very people who tortured and murdered him. And as he hung upon that cross, I think it's telling that looking upon the people who unjustly put him through the most gruesome pain and suffering imaginable, he looks down on the people that did this to him. And the last thing, one of the last phrases he utters is this, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. What was Jesus doing? He was extending mercy to his offenders. He was extending mercy to his enemies, to those who didn't deserve it. You know the idea of being at mercy, um, of, at the mercy of someone else? Have you ever thought about that? Um, I know this all too well because I am regularly at the mercy of my beloved wife. There are so many times, and it's not because, you know, she's particularly sensitive. It's because I'm an idiot, honestly, and I just mess up a lot of times. Like, you know, she played Zelda over 40 hours, Breath of the Wild, and one day I accidentally erased her entire account. This morning, she was supposed to come to church, but I accidentally took the car keys with me as I lifted here, and so she's at home with Zion. Like, I just mess up all the time, and I've regularly felt this feeling. I don't know if you felt it before of being at the mercy of someone else. Like, okay, you control my fate. You can destroy me and smite me, or you can show me mercy. And I can't tell you how many times Krista, when she had every right to smite me and kick me out of the house and make me sleep on the couch with fig, she has extended mercy to me and forgiven me when she had every right to punish me instead. And when we read, when Paul says in Ephesians 4.32, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, this is the part of the verse that we have to pay attention to. Just as in Christ God forgave you. That we are once at the mercy of God. And instead of giving us what we deserve, instead of letting us mess up our lives and continue on a path of destruction and loneliness and sin, instead, he extends his loving kindness. And this is the key verse in understanding why we're called to forgive others. It's because we ourselves have been forgiven. Hear me, church. Mercy comes from mercy. In other words, we become what we receive. The mercy that we extend to others first comes from the mercy that we've ourselves received from God. And listen, if you've never been at that place in life where you're so broken, when you've made a mess of everything, hurt everyone you love, effed it all up and thought to yourself, I need God, you've actually never experienced true mercy. And if you've never experienced true mercy, You only have so much mercy to give. We're unable to show mercy when we think that we're above the need for mercy. I don't know about you, but nothing humbles me more when I feel like, man, I need grace. There's... It's almost like I can't hold a grudge against people sometimes when I know that I myself need grace. And this is the invitation Jesus extends to us, that the key to becoming a merciful person is first and foremost becoming a broken person. 
to remember the mercy that I'm called to extend to others is first the mercy that I have been shown. And this is the way of Jesus. You know, the older I get, I don't know how you were like towards your parents, but when I was an angsty teenager, I used to be like, I hate you, dad. Like, you hurt me so much. You weren't there for me. Like, I don't know why. I feel like Zion, that's just the voice of Zion when he grows up in his little backward baseball cap. And I already started a therapy fund for him because I know I'm going to mess him up. But I don't know, when you're younger, you almost have no mercy for your parents, right? Like, you hold them to such an impossible standard that no parent, no father or mother can meet. Like, our parents are literally the reason for trauma and wounds in our lives, right? But, but you know they tried their best. But something happens when you get older, and something even happens when you have a kid of your own. All of a sudden, your heart begins overflowing with mercy, you realize, shoot, like, dad, I know. My, my, I used to tell my dad, I wish you were there. You were never there. But now, my, now I say, like, I know you tried your best. Like, I know being an immigrant here in America was not easy. I know paving the way for our family wasn't easy. I know how many sacrifices you made. I know you tried the best that you could. And there's something about aging and, and getting older where you start to experience more mercy towards your parents. And it's because you yourself become more humble and soft as you get older. You realize, shoot, this is harder than it looks like. Parenting is actually harder than it looks like. Being kind and not hurting people is actually harder than it looks like. Even my best friends, it's hard not to hurt them. This is just the way of life. And so mercy first and foremost comes when we realize we ourselves are in need of mercy every day. Now, Dr. Gary Brashear, they actually... Fun fact, they married, um, he married, he's a professor, and he married Maureen and Josh, really cool guy. But this is what he says about forgiveness. He says this, forgiveness is my personal act to release the one who sinned against me from my personal right to collect on the moral debt, to pay them back for their offense. Instead of giving them back the pain they gave me, I absorb the pain into myself with God's help. That's so good. It's giving up my right to collect on my moral debt. TK, my man Tim Keller, you know, homie TK, he says, forgiveness means refusing to make them pay for what they did. The Greek word for forgive is this word aphemi, which actually translates to release, to let go, to send away. In other words, forgiveness is releasing others from their debt. The same way Jesus released us from our debt, when someone wrongs us, we have two choices. We can make them pay or we can forgive. And this is what mercy looks like. Mark eleven twenty four. Jesus says, whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father in heaven may also forgive you. Now notice in this moment, who, who is this interaction between? It's between the offended and it's between God. Nowhere in this interaction is the offender. The offender is not present. The offender is not even spoken to. In other words, forgiveness is first and foremost a vertical act. It's an act between me and God. The offender's presence isn't required for you to make the decision to forgive. The offender's repentance isn't even required for you to make the decision to forgive. Your words of forgiveness are addressed first and foremost to God because this forgiveness is something accomplished only between you and him. Big asterisk, 
But hear me, this does not mean, forgiveness doesn't mean we condone people's crappy behavior. It doesn't mean that what they did is okay. It doesn't mean that you have to forget what they did for you and act like everything's okay, like an unhealthy type seven. It doesn't mean people are free from the consequences of their actions. We're not playing a cute Christian game here. I mean, some of us have been legitimately hurt and traumatized by people that we've loved and trusted. And these are real things. And we're not trying to throw some artificial Christian bumper sticker and saying, forgive everyone, all is well. We can all be friends, happy, running through the daisies and skipping. This is not what we're talking about. It simply means that you are releasing their, your right to collect their debt, releasing them and saying, God, into your hands they go. There's a big difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. Forgiveness is releasing someone of their debt, but reconciliation is restoration of the relationship. And there's a big difference. Forgiveness doesn't mean everything's back to normal. Forgiveness doesn't mean completely letting people in that have abused your trust. Forgiveness doesn't mean you become buddy-buddy with your offender. In fact, there are cases, so many cases, where it would be grossly inappropriate for you to be in relationship with your offender again. And so forgiveness and reconciliation are two different things. Setting healthy boundaries does not mean you have unforgiveness in your heart. You can still set firm boundaries. You can still live without reconciling a relationship while still letting go in forgiveness the offense that they have caused you. It simply means you are releasing them from their debt. In other words, we can't control how other people respond, but we can control what's going on inside of us. I may not be able to control reconciliation. That's on them. If they're willing to repent, if they're willing to own up how they hurt me, but I can take responsibility for forgiveness. John Ortberg, one of my favorite quotes of all time, he says this, to forgive does not mean forget, condone, excuse, tolerate, or overlook. It means to choose the way of love over the way of hate. The way of love might be painful. It might not always be doing what the other person wants me to do. But we do forgiveness at the cross where Jesus died for the forgiveness of our sins and where we remember that I have a bigger sin debt before God than anybody has before me. God is still in the forgiving business. And the questions I want to ask you today are this. Are there people in your life that you haven't released your debt from? Are there people in your life that God is calling you to forgive? Are there debts that you've held over others that God is calling you to release? And it doesn't mean that you guys be best friends again or be in relationship, but is there forgiveness that God is calling you to extend mercy that he's calling you to step forward? Lewis Smeets, he says, the first and often the only person healed by forgiveness is the person who does the forgiving When we genuinely forgive, we set a prisoner free and then discover that the prisoner we set free is us. Damn, isn't that true? Um, A lot of you know my story, but I, I had so much bitterness and unforgiveness towards my father for the longest time. And I realized after so many years of holding this grudge, this, this anger and this angst towards him, I remember the moment I forgave It was actually like I was being set free. I don't know if you've ever felt that, releasing the burden of having to make someone pay for what they did is so freeing. And so we ourselves are set free first and foremost when we extend mercy. That is the grace that God extends to us through this. And so we express mercy, number one, by helping those in need, number two, forgiving the offender, and the last one is this, welcoming 
the outsider. Matthew 9, 10 through 13. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. But when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus says, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. I think one of the most important questions that every generation can ask is this, who are the outsiders? Who in our day, in our culture, in our context, who are those who are on the margins of society? Who are those who are on the outside of the church looking in? Because those are the exact people that Jesus would have welcomed in, the rebels, the runaways, the outliers, the misfits, the people you wouldn't catch dead at church on Sunday. And listen, I know we love this idea of Jesus being the kind of person that eats with sinners and tax collectors, but I don't think we understand how truly scandalous this was. Like sinners, maybe, like we can kind of vibe with that idea, but you know tax collectors? You know who they were? They were the ones who sold out their own people to make a quick buck. They sold out their own people when Roman occupation happened. The Romans were oppressing the Jews. The tax collectors were those Jews who said, I will help collect on the debt of my own people. I will sell them out so that I can get ahead in this kingdom. They sided with the oppressor and got paid to do it. And so, you know, they weren't hated like, I hate you because you gave me a parking ticket. No, they were hated like, you sack of S-word, you traitor, how dare you sell out your own people for profit? Listen, if Jesus did this today, I guarantee you it would not be sexy, it would not be celebrated, it would not be on his Instagram highlight reel. He would have been canceled yesterday to eat with the people that were selling out their own people, that would betray their own people for money. But this is the price that Jesus was willing to pay to live a life of mercy. And this is the calling we have as the church today. One of my favorite um, activists, he once said, mercy without justice leads to the oppressed becoming oppressors. And when I was thinking about the modern-day social justice movement, I was thinking, what role does the church have to play? Because sometimes it feels like we're so behind and we're just playing catch-up. What can we as the church offer in our current modern-day justice movement? I believe it's this. It's mercy. I believe that is the X factor that we can bring to this justice movement, that there is mercy, that this is a system that we're trying to rebuild, but not so that it's opposite but that it's a new way, a better way, a way of mercy and justice where both can coexist. When I think about the kind of church I want us to be, I think about a church that cares more about mercy than reputation. That's more concerned with welcoming in the outsider than appeasing the inner circle. Listen, I hope they look at us sideways and think, oh my God, so many people from the LGBTQ community go to that church. Oh my God, that's what's going on. I hope they look at us and think, oh, that's what the community is comprised of, those kind of people, the people that are deconstructing your faith, that are in doubt, people that are just coming back to church. I hope they look at us funny. I don't give a damn about our resurrection or about our reputation. I do care about resurrection. <laughs> What I care about 
is that we are a safe place, a welcoming place, a place that extends mercy to the outsider where they can come and belong and find a home. In other words, the gospel has never been about who is excluded from the kingdom of God. It's always been about who is included in. And when I think about the biggest impact that Jesus left on the church is this very idea that mercy is extended to the people that we would otherwise disgrace, exclude, or forget. You know what? When I think about it, it should break our hearts that there are so many people out there that don't feel like they can come into the doors of our church. It should break our hearts. There are so many people that feel like they don't have a safe place to seek God. It should break our hearts that there are people that do not feel like they have a spiritual home, no community where they could seek God. Mercy looks like welcoming the outsider in. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who led such a powerful movement of the spirit in Nazi Germany, who at the price of his own reputation, even risking his life, was practicing mercy day in, day out. He once said this, the merciful pay no attention to their own honor but are glad to incur reproach by seeking out the company of the downtrodden, the sick, the wretched, the wronged, the outcast, and all who are tortured with anxiety. Jesus expressed mercy by welcoming in the outsider, and we have the opportunity to love God by loving the people we're not supposed to love. This is the challenging question. Who are the people you're not supposed to love? Who are the people that you are not supposed to extend mercy to? Because this is the calling of the gospel. There's a line from one of my favorite artist songs, um, John Mark McMillan. He's one of my favorite songwriters and artists. He's like um, a super angsty Christian artist, and he's so angsty. He doesn't even like sing typical Christian songs, but that's why I love him. And it's a song called No Country where he features, um, you guys know the spoken word artist, Propaganda. And he says this line, Propaganda says this line in the song. He says, we ain't crossed the border. The border crossed me. I think this is such a powerful image, not just for God's heart for immigration and the borders, but we remember that even us, for us, God never expected anyone to cross the border to enter into his kingdom. But what Jesus did is he actually moved the border to include us in. Listen, the gospel and the kingdom, the circle, is a lot wider than you and I think. There is mercy and there is welcome extended to more people than we realize. In other words, the rebels, the runaways, the misfits, the outliers, the outsiders in the margins of society, they are called to enter into the kingdom. And this is the call of mercy. And so the questions I want to ask you are this. Who are the outsiders that God is calling you to pursue today? Who are those that God, that have been on the outliers, on the margins of the church and society that God is calling you to reach out to today, and how can you welcome them into the love of God? Not welcome them into church, welcome them into the love of God. Because maybe this still isn't a safe place for some people. Maybe there's still too much trauma attached to the idea of church, but how can you welcome them in to the love of God wherever they are so that they can enter into the kingdom that Jesus has welcomed them into? So we can express mercy, and here's my, here's my, um, my plea, here's my challenge. In this season, can we really rally around this vision 
of expressing mercy by, number one, helping those in need. Number two, forgiving the offender, whatever that looks like in your personal, corporate life. And number three, welcoming in the outsider. I believe these are the things that God is calling us to. Last thing I'll say about this is the mercy, the ministry of mercy, I think, is probably the best uh, church advertising that we can possibly put out there. It's better than our amazing Instagram and our amazing community that's just so photogenic. It's better than all of those things. It's better than our teaching. It's better than our worship. By the way, we're releasing our first worship song on Easter Sunday. It's going to be so dope. But listen, we have a better church marketing strategy than those things. I think it's mercy. When I think about what the church should be known for in our merciless, cutthroat world, I think it's mercy. How countercultural would it be if we could embody this very idea? Hendrik Nicholas was a German mystic, and during his lifetime, he would meditate on this beatitude, and he described, he came to the conclusion that this is the image that most resounds with him when he thinks about mercy in this beatitude. He sees this image of stretching out the hand, and he's saying he envisioned that the people of God would be a people who would stretch open their hand with food for the poor with loving hospitality for the stranger, with forgiveness for the offender, that what it means that blessed are the merciful is that we would be a people who stretch out our hands, open hands, to give what we have to those who need it the most. What would it look like to stretch out our hands upon our community? What would it look like to stretch out our hands upon our family, our friends, our coworkers, our neighbors? What would it look like in this season to be a people of mercy? I think that we would see God move in such radical and extraordinary ways. But first, we must help those in need. We must welcome in the outsider, and we must be willing to forgive the offender.